All right, welcome everyone. You're, you're a part of this segment called The Dirty Secrets of the Financial Elite, which is a book that I wrote. And I'm going to share with you every week, twice a week, a chapter from that book. So you don't have to pay, you just listen and enjoy. And I'd love for as many people to have that opportunity because it's about achieving financial freedom in New Zealand, as well as protecting you from yourself in the sense. We have psychological and cognitive biases that let us down from time to time. And I just want to give you control over that and more clarity on what you want from life. So hope you enjoy it. And uh, this is the chapter for the day. This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Mole from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Chapter 7, The Filters Defining Financial Riches You're put in the hard yards, you're now saving towards a goal. When I told you to group those goals into specific time frames of short to long, you might have wondered why. This is where the why starts coming together because it is time to start talking investment. The three most common ways of investing have been the same for hundreds of years. Buy land, own a business, or loan money. You may start getting confused at this point on why loaning money is a common investment strategy. Well, if you haven't realized already, when you put money in the bank, you're effectively loaning it to them for a price, interest. What most people aren't aware of is that when you loan the bank money, more often than not, you break even or lose money. This is where you start telling me about your turn deposits earning 3% and calling bullshit on what I just said. But if you actually break it down after tax and inflation, the return ends up being around minus 1% to 1%. Not convinced? Let's do the calculation for a tax rate of 30%, an interest rate of 3%, and an inflation rate of 2%. The result is as follows. 3% times 0.7 equals 2.1% return after tax. 2.1% minus 2% equals 0.1% return after tax and inflation. This is what we call in the financial industry the real return after tax, fees and inflation. What you really get. Because the biggest enemy to your financial well-being is the increasing cost of living, or in other words, inflation. Historically in New Zealand, from 1926 to now, inflation has averaged close to 4.5%. That includes periods of extreme hyperinflation in the 80s, periods of low inflation now. Before you start falling asleep, this is a really important point. To really hammer it home, let's use a famously simple equation to scare any dedicated saver. It's called the rule of 72. There's a way for you to calculate the number of years it will take for your money to either halve in value or double with compounding interest. For example, how many years would it take for your mortgage to double if you didn't contribute to it at all? What you do is simply divide 72 by the return slash interest rate. So if your mortgage is 6%, then the equation would look like this. 72 divided by 6% equals 12 years. Meaning, if you let your mortgage compound and not contribute to it, 
then in 12 years it will go from 500k to $1 million. This tells us two things. One, the first step of any financial plan should be to pay off debt, with a second being to have an investment that outpaces inflation, which effectively means getting a return greater than 2% after tax and fees. Before we go too deep into the nitty-gritty of investing, we need to create the filters of which to look at opportunities through. So let's begin. Risk versus return. In investing, there are very tried and true rules you can rely on relatively consistently. Although nothing is an exact science, this is a good rule to have as a foundation. Risk and return have a strong correlation with each other. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. The strange thing is most people's go-to question with investing is, how much of a return can you get me? Which if asked correctly, would be, how much risk can you give me? When investing is done right, the risk is actually volatility, i.e. more ups and downs. Though when done incorrectly, the risk is that you could lose all your money. We've all heard enough stories of this to be incredibly wary, if not fearful, of taking that investment leap. Which flows to my next point, don't lose money. This sounds really silly even as I type it. The idea of this filter is that we do not want to put ourselves in the position where we could lose money. This includes outpacing inflation, not putting all eggs in one basket, and not selling when the market is down. You will hear all too often of speculative investors telling you of the quick fortune that they have recently made, but very rarely do they share their losses with you. When you add up all the money they have lost, the potential returns they have missed out on due to that loss, it starts to paint a very different picture. Diversify. The same rule that your parents drilled into you as a child has relevance to you now. Don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Sounds simple, but even smart people who know this rule make that very mistake. Owning lots of different shares with a strong correlation, i.e. companies all in the same industry, and calling it diversified, is okay on paper, but in reality not so much. Sure, you own shares in hundreds of companies, but if the sector goes, then so does your money. Is it sellable? Once again, sounds really simple, but the implementation for most is lacking. The financial times would call this liquidity. In other words, is there a demand for what you own and how quickly can you sell it? What this shows is that the value of your asset is not necessarily what it says on paper, but what others will actually pay for it. If you own shares in a company with no buying and selling market, then the likelihood of someone buying is much lower, and potentially the value would be zero if no one buys it. So what is your investment really worth? Is it flexible? This is the part of investing that is often overlooked. The one thing we know about the future is that we can never have complete certainty over what will happen. So even if you have a great investment strategy, if it's not flexible to adapt to your change in circumstances, then you could lose out. By this I mean over the long term, you may be on track to do well, but then something happens where you need money, so sell when the market is down. This is what we call crystallizing your loss, as the gain or loss in your investment strategy is only realized at the point of sale. Is it tax efficient? This is a subtle but important point. Often we get so caught up on the bottom line, whether it be returns or fees, we neglect to think of the tax implications of our investment. For one, in New Zealand, we don't have capital gains tax, which effectively means if the value of your investment increases, the government won't class it as income, which means it's tax-free. On top of that, we have here in New Zealand groups labelled as portfolio investment entities, or in other words, PIE funds. 
These, fin- these funds provide you with the opportunity to pay less tax than what you would on your income from your business or job. You'll start to notice already that if your pay-as-you-earn rate or residential withholding tax on your income is 30% plus, then effectively the 28% option saves you money. I won't go too far into this as it even puts me to sleep, but it's essential to be conscious of this when making an investment decision. If it doesn't make sense, then don't give it your sense. I'm not an advocate for a direct investment, i.e. buying shares in just one company as it is too prone to human error and has a higher probability of failure than success. If you do it though, I see it as a bit like being one of the top athletes in the world in a chosen field because essentially you're competing against all the perceptions of the smartest people around the globe and saying you know something they don't. In other words, you have discovered an underpriced stock. For you to even have the chance to beat the collective knowledge of the world, you need to know or do something that no one else does. Even the best direct investor of our time, Warren Buffett, who reads 8 hours a day and started his first investment as a child, says that you only find 2 to 3 great companies in your life. By this, he means even with this level of dedication to the craft, he believes to have that level of competitive advantage you need to be specialized in what you know and that even then the opportunities can be rare. More filters will unravel as we progress through this book, but those are the foundations. So let's start by using them in real life situations. Scenario 1. Imagine yourself sitting around the campfire in the 1990s surrounded by all your double denim wearing friends. Just as you're about to crack open another beer, the topic of the internet flows into the conversation. One friend starts adamantly declaring how it is going to revolutionize the world. Another friend chimes in on how much money he is making on the stocks. Every single company in my investment portfolio with a dot-com is just exploding. He's drowning in cash. You hear of the massive returns, the potential of the industry, and the support of your peers. So you start adding the filters to this claims. Is it high risk? Yes. Is it diversified? No. Could you lose all your money? Yes. Is it sellable? Maybe. Is it tax efficient? Can't say. Do you understand it? Not really. Is it flexible? No. What I've just described to you is the dot-com crash. From 2000 to 2002, investors lost a total of $5 trillion. Crowd hysteria agreed easy capital for companies, overflated share prices, and all the eggs in one basket led to the house of cards coming undone. But if you had a diversified portfolio, not sold when things got tough and ticked the other boxes too, you would have come out on top. Scenario 2. This time for several years, you've had all your money in the bank. But you're starting to get concerned that you're not getting the returns you would like. So you've started looking elsewhere. Fortunately, you read of this opportunity to get a slightly higher return than the bank and it appears to be relatively low risk due to the lower returns. As part of the lending sector, so not too dissimilar from the bank where you loan them money and they pay your interest. It has been performing very well after an economic downturn as banks are providing fewer loans to be on the safe side, and thus making the lenders more competitive. This given the recent downturn provides a potential to earn higher returns and is something you are considering, but before you invest you add the filters. Is it high risk? It doesn't sound like it. Is it diversified? No. Could you lose all your money? Yes. Is it sellable? No. Is it tax efficient? No. Do you understand it? A little bit, because it's like the bank. Is it flexible? No. 
This, if you haven't guessed it yet, is the finance company collapse of 2006 to 2012, where many New Zealanders lost their life savings. The tricky part of this investment strategy was due to the lower returns, it didn't appear as a risky investment. Funnily enough, a finance company approached Greg Moore during that time, offering him a 3% commission for every dollar of his client's money he invested with them, which at the time was close to $100 million. Which if, which if you did the math, would give him an annual income of $3 million a year. So you know what he did? He threw it in the bin. The reason his clients have never lost any money in the 30 years of being a financial advisor is for the very fact he embodies these fundamental principles. 